Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Podcast Public Service Announcement. You're about to hear an episode in the middle of a multi-part show arc. If you haven't heard the previous episodes, we suggest you skip back to part one of this topic in the feed and listen in order. All right, Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. Also have to take a quick detour into legends of King Arthur and the Holy Grail. I mean, if I went round saying I was an emperor just because some moistened bint had lobbed a scimitar at me, they put me away. Shut up, will you? Shut up! Ah, now we see the violence inherent in the system. Shut up! Oh, come and see the violence inherent in the system. Help! Help! I'm being repressed, bloody peasant. Oh, what a giveaway! Do you hear that? Do you hear that? Eh? Yes, young Jesuit was introduced to the Grail through the kind offices of Messrs. Cleese, Palin, Idle, Jones, Chapman, and Gilliam. But the Holy Grail legend dates back to the late 11th or early 12th century, and though the form factor and function of said Grail evolves over that time, the most important version is that the Grail is a cup or plate used by Jesus himself during what's known to Christians as the Last Supper, and days later the blood of the crucified Jesus was caught by Joseph of Arimathea, who, according to some of the Gospels, offered his family's tomb to be temporarily, as it turns out, used to house the body of J-Man after his death. We are absolutely fucking positive that anyone who has existed for any length of time in our Hollywood-dominated culture has at least heard of the Holy Grail. Not only is it pivotal, in a weirdly altered form, in the extremely popular yet shockingly bad Dan Brown novels about protagonist Robert Langdon. It is also central to the other most iconic scene involving Indiana Jones outside of the Raiders' face melting, namely the super-fast aging of the dude who picks the wrong cup out of a lineup in the third movie. He chose poor before Indy correctly identifies the cup of a carpenter, pours magic hydrogen peroxide on his dad, James Bond, and heals the man's Nazi-caused bullet wound. Now, the Holy Grail is, unlike Solomon's Temple, definitely not biblical in its origin. And definitely entirely legendary, also unlike Solomon's Temple. Interestingly, it first became an object of fascination and veneration as part of the tales of King Arthur and his knights. But it was considered both a legend and a real object during the time when the Knights Templar were on the scene namely the long and bloody period we now know as the Crusades. Wait, it sounds like you're adding yet another goddamn introductory topic. No, 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 no. Dana, think of this more as a direct bridge into our first major subject. After all, the origin of the Knights Templar makes absolutely no fucking sense if you don't first know about what, how, and why the Crusades existed in the first place. And unless our listeners are particularly interested in this subject or are already familiar with a lot of Christian and or Islamic religious history, it could get pretty confusing. So give me just one more quick bit of scene setting? Fine, but I invoke the lightning round. You have... 
three minutes, 30 seconds to introduce the Crusades. Tough, but fair. Okay, so I'm assuming that either from basic knowledge of history or church mosque attendance, all of you out there are at least vaguely familiar with the outlines of how Christianity and Islam got started. So we'll sketch the simplest possible story. Around the time when we in the West marked the calendar shift from B.C. to A.D. or C.E., a baby was born in the Jewish town of Nazareth in Galilee. This timing is not a coincidence. He grew up to be an itinerant teacher or rabbi, preached about a coming kingdom of God, ran afoul of both Jewish and Roman authorities, and was executed by the latter via a grisly crucifixion in the city of Jerusalem in about 33 CE. His followers went on to promote an evolving religious vision that eventually held that this man, Jesus, was in fact the Son of God, and the religion that bears his name gradually spread across the world. On to Islam. In around the year 610, a 40-year-old Arab merchant in the town of Mecca began dictating a series of what he termed revelations that he claimed were delivered to him from God via the angel Gabriel. These were collected in a book today known as the Quran, which became the holy book of Muhammad's religious and military movement known as Islam. During his lifetime, Muhammad's armies conquered all of Arabia, and after his death, it would spread across the world. One of the key moments of his biography for his followers was a miraculous night when he ascended from a particular point in Jerusalem. We mentioned this event earlier. Now, by the time Muhammad came on the scene, Jerusalem had passed from the control of now-Christian Rome to that of the also-Christian Byzantines. I.e. the eastern half of the Roman Empire after it split in two. The Byzantines then lost and rewon the city a number of times in an ongoing series of battles with the Persian Sassanid Empire before finally Jerusalem was captured by a Muslim army in the year 638. It remained in the hands of Muslims for the next 450 years, though during that period it passed into the hands of a number of different warring caliphates, including the Seljuks and the Fatimids. In the meantime, all of Europe, except for the parts that had been subsequently conquered by invading Islamic armies, had converted to Christianity and many of these Christian believers felt a calling to visit the places in and around ancient Israel that are discussed in the Bible, especially the New Testament, which deals specifically with the life and death of Jesus and his followers. This pilgrimage movement gained momentum in the 11th century. Remember, that's the one where all the dates start with 10-something, which both makes sense and is super confusing. As a general wave of piety swept through Europe, the papacy, that is, the office of the Pope, who then, as now, was known as the head of the Roman Church, but it was at that time only one of several church fathers with religious authority over different parts of Christendom. Had been rebuilding its influence for a few decades, when a combination of violence against Christian pilgrims venturing to the Holy Lands, a request from the Patriarch of Constantinople, Istanbul! For military aid against the Muslim armies that had conquered parts of Byzantium, and the various political and economic pressures that always secretly undergird these historical events, led to Pope Urban II calling in 1095 for a great Christian crusade to help the Byzantines and retake Jerusalem and the surrounding Holy Land for Christ. And that's where, much to Dana's relief, we finally transition over to talking about the... We want to know all the places you go In the shadows we are watching We want to be all that you want to be We want to be your beliefs Knights Templar. Now, technically, the knights weren't around for the first... And most successful crusade, in which organized Christian armies swept across a divided and militarily unprepared swath of the eastern Mediterranean. 
There were numerous battles, plenty of intrigue, especially between the Western European crusaders, known at the time as the Frankish armies, and the Eastern European or Byzantine Christians, who often butted heads with their Western co-religionists. Even though the crusade was launched, at least in part, to help those self-same Byzantines. But for our purposes, we're going to pick up the story 20 years after the First Crusade succeeded in establishing four so-called crusader kingdoms that encompassed parts of modern-day Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, and of course Israel. That last one is the most important for the formation of the Templars. In the wake of the Crusaders setting up shop, Christian pilgrims came flooding into the Holy Land now that they would, presumably, be able to visit the places where their Savior had walked without fear of being assaulted or killed by those hostile to their faith. Only, the thing was, while Jerusalem, Antioch, and a number of other newly Christian cities in the region were, indeed, safe and hospitable to these pilgrims, the surrounding areas, in which many of the holiest sites were located, were still rife with bandits seeking to rob and even kill these religious travelers. In 1119, a French knight named Hugh de Payen proposed creating a group of warrior monks headquartered in Jerusalem who would dedicate their lives to protecting these pilgrims, the king and the patriarch of Jerusalem, who was, in a sense, the Pope of that region, approved of this plan, and thus were born the Knights Templar. At this point, we should introduce the first of two excellent books that ground our tales of both the historical doings of the Knights, as well as the fevered imaginings that later conspiracists have grafted onto them. Dan Jones' The Templars is an excellent deep dive into the group, which we strongly recommend you check out. Link in the show notes, of course. One of the first things you'll learn from this book is that the group's full title was actually The Poor Fellow Soldiers of Christ and the Temple of Jerusalem, and that they were only one of a number of Christian military orders created at that time. Jones lists, for example, the Order of St. Lazarus, which was designed to help pilgrims who were also lepers, the Sword Brothers of Livonia, who were dedicated to fighting pagans in the Baltic region, and most importantly, the Knights Hospitaller, who actually predated the Templars. The Hospitallers are actually still around as a Catholic order to this day, unlike the Templars. Or maybe that's just what the Templars want you to think. There was a big difference between the groups, though. The Hospitallers started as a purely medical religious order, tending to sick and wounded pilgrims in the Holy Land. They took up arms and adopted military discipline in order to protect those under their care. The Templars, meanwhile, were created from the beginning as a combination of religious and military order, and they were generally seen as the greatest and most feared of the forces of the Crusaders. Now, you might be wondering how exactly the Christian Church could get behind an idea that amounted to taking monks, that is, men who had forsworn marriage and private existence for a life of service to God, and merging that concept with the idea of armed warriors. After all, the dude whose teachings they were supposed to be emulating was famous for telling his followers to offer their other cheek when someone slaps them, rather than fight back. The Templars, Hospitallers, etc. actually owe their existence to a theological innovation that was generated in response to the perceived need to reclaim the Holy Land from the godless hordes of Islam. Their phrasing, not ours, of course. Once those lands were retaken, it became obvious that the armies who did the conquering would be returning to their countries of origin in Europe, and that therefore those who remained in the Holy Land, many of whom would of course be in religious orders, would almost certainly be put in a position where they must take up arms to defend the faith and the territorial gains the original armies had made. Once this new thinking was applied to turning the Hospitallers into a group who could defend themselves and their patients, it was a pretty short leap to the creation of the Templars. Of course, once Hugh and his band original name, The News. We're given the go-ahead. 
They needed some place to live, which is when they were assigned to a wing of the once and future Al-Aqsa Mosque, aka the hotly contested previous site of the definitely historical second Jewish temple and potentially of the arguably legendary first temple of Solomon discussed earlier. Which of course is how the Knights got their identity as the Knights of the Temple, or the Templars. True to their founding, the early years of the New Order. Tone it down, Jesuit. Yes'm. Anyway, for the first few years, the knights indeed lived up to their full title. They lived in the temple, served Christ, and were poor as dirt. Here's how Jones characterizes the purpose of the Templars' early days. It must have seemed that a complementary order of armed escorts could lighten the load on the hospitallers and further improve conditions for the thousands of pilgrims who passed through the region. Around the time of the Council of Nablus, it was decided that instead of being attached to the Holy Sepulchre, this pious band of knights should be given independence, some means of feeding and clothing themselves, access to priests who could lead prayers for them at the appropriate hours of the day, and a place to live in one of the prominent areas of Jerusalem. The crown would assist with the means of their upkeep, but their main task would be one of equal interest to king, patriarch, and every other Christian visitor to the Holy Lands. They would be responsible, in the words of a charter produced in 1137, for the defence of Jerusalem and the protection of pilgrims. Part bodyguards, part paupers, a tiny brotherhood devoted only to arms and prayer. These were the men who became the first knights of the temple. Eventually, through the support of Bernard of Clairvaux, a heavy hitter in the Western Christian world at that time, a fact reflected in his eventual post-mortem title, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, the Templars were given the explicit approval of the Pope and the support of the Church in 1129. Just as importantly, they were made answerable only to their grandmaster and to the Pope himself. Jones explains how this unheard-of independence played out in practice over the subsequent decades. While obedience and discipline within their own command structure was tight, the same was not necessarily true when it came to fighting with others. Templars owed allegiance to no one but God, the Master, and the Pope. Neither kings nor patriarchs had any formal command over them, and though their able services were sought and willingly given, in the end the Templars were ultimately free from any effective oversight. They defended the idea of Christendom and the honour of Christ, but how they did so was technically a matter for their own instinct and judgment. For the most part, this made them an extremely agile and useful elite fighting force. At times, however, their independence made them dangerous, and they came to be suspected as much as they were admired by the secular rulers with whom they had to share the field of combat. Jones points out that the creation of the Templars was actually the beginning of what we now think of as medieval knights. Before this time, knights were just a sort of mercenary warrior caste. They could as often be found terrorizing peasants with their skill at arms as serving in a petty noble's army. The Templars, by infusing the idea of knighthood with religious purity, in a sense delivered to us the idea of Arthurian-style knights errant as we now understand them with the underlying ideas of chivalry, defending virtue in the weak, etc., emerging as a result. Over subsequent years, they proved themselves in battle against various Islamic fighters, and their fame grew both in the Holy Land and back home in Europe. The Templars, Hospitallers, and others began receiving bequests of land and money from religious monarchs and other wealthy Christians. 
the idea being, if these orders had enough independent sources of funding through grants of land and businesses, they could dispense with the concerns of this world and focus their attentions on praying to God and smiting the infidels. With these gifts, the Templars expanded and became more powerful. Jones details the holdings that the Templars held in England alone by the 13th century. Manor houses and homesteads, sheep farms and water mills, churches, markets, forests and fairs, sprawling estates and isolated villages, where dozens of men worked in serfdom. This was a property portfolio accumulated over more than half a century from pious donations and smart business deals. It included hundreds of interests scattered across England. This same sort of catalogue could be recited for holdings across Europe during this period. Which, as you might imagine, made it harder to maintain their image as the poor fellow soldiers. Exactly. But so long as they kept whipping ass on the battlefield, all was well. But they didn't? Well, no. As we noted, the initial success of the Crusaders came largely due to the lack of cohesion among the various Muslim states and armies in the region. But inevitably, someone arose who was able to conquer and cajole his way into forming a united opposition to the Christians. That man being, of course, al-Nasir Salal al-Din Yusuf ibn Ayyub. Or as the Crusaders called him, Saladin. Over five years from 1182 to 1187, Saladin's army swept the Crusaders almost entirely out of the lands they had conquered handing the Knights Templar, as well as the other Christian armies, defeat after defeat. Finally, in late 1187, Saladin's victorious army marched through the streets of Jerusalem, allowing the remaining Christians 40 days to put together sufficient ransom to be allowed to leave the city unharmed. The Muslims washed the former temple, now a rededicated mosque, from top to bottom with rosewater to cleanse the stink of the Crusaders out of the place. The 50 Knights Templar who had survived and who remained in the city escorted the remaining Christians out of Jerusalem for what turned out to be the final time. This was absolutely devastating to the Templars' morale, of course. As Jones put it, It was hard to avoid the conclusion that God had abandoned his soldiers. This was not the end of the story of the Templars in the Holy Land. In fact, as Jones notes, with so much lost, the pressure only increased on them to protect what remained. Michael Hagg, in his book, which, confusingly for our purposes, is also titled The Templars, like Jones's, notes that counterintuitively, the loss of Jerusalem made the holy warriors, that is, mainly the Templars and the Hospitallers, even more powerful. They had independent holdings and financing, and their entire purpose for existence was the holding and now the reclaiming of the Holy Land. At no point in their history would the Templars be more powerful than in the century after nearly everything in the Holy Land was lost to Saladin. Which means they were raring to go a couple of years later when the Saladin-related setbacks to the cause inspired the Third Crusade, led by the famous Richard the Lionheart. An animated lion whose crusade engendered absence from his throne in England allowed his brother, Prince John, through his lackey, the corrupt Sheriff of Nottingham, a sort of obese wolf bear type thing, to tax the fuck out of everybody, inspiring a talented fox archer to set out with his band of merry men and a supple bow to put things right. I saw that documentary. The West reacted with shock to the loss of Jerusalem and responded by launching the Third Crusade in 1190. In a remarkable series of victories, first Philip II of France and Richard I of England, known as the Lionheart, recovered Acre in July 1191, and then Richard went on to take Jaffa and Ascalon as well. After defeating Saladin in a great battle at Arsuf in September 1191, in which the military orders played a leading role. 
But while Richard was successful in retaking a number of key cities and castles, he stopped before Jerusalem, assured by his advisers that while he could take the city, it would be impossible to hold it. Richard returned to Europe after cementing a three-year truce with Saladin that kept most of Richard's reconquered territory intact. Unfortunately for the Templars, this was pretty much the last high-water mark of the whole crusading thing. Jerusalem was in fact reconquered in 1229 by Christian forces, but they did it without the aid or presence of the Templars, and it was only held for a decade before once again it was taken by Muslims. Even though the Crusader kingdoms had been whittled away by 1190, the Templars held a fortress at Acre, which under the name Aka or Ako is a port city in modern-day Israel, for another century, thereby lending at least some credence to the idea that they were still an active military force, ready and willing to be the tip of the spear whenever Christian Europe was ready to resume crusading. Thing is, though, that never really happened in an international and comprehensive way ever again. The Templars ended up with a sort of nominal military footprint in Acre and surrounding areas, but with a much more significant presence in European states, not as a military force, but as, well bankers. the 12th and most of the 13th century, in spite of their military setbacks, the Templars were seen by a succession of popes and various local rulers as a great asset. There were, of course, whispers about them. For example, Jones quotes John of Salisbury, who, along with many others writing at the time, thought the whole idea of the holy city of Jerusalem being defended by warrior monks as a disturbing contradiction in terms. Harkening back to that theological frisson between the nonviolent message of Christianity and the violent pursuits of the Templars. Hag notes that, to their detractors, there was a feeling that because war justified the existence of the Templars, they therefore feared the outbreak of peace. John was also among those who aired suspicions that there were some dire secrets being hidden behind the white cloaks of the Templars. When they convene in their lairs late at night, after speaking of virtue by day, they shake their hips in nocturnal folly and exertion. It was exactly a century since Hugh of Pan had established the Order of the Poor Knights of the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem. Those one hundred years had seen the Templars transformed from indigent shepherds of the pilgrim roads, dependent on the charity of fellow pilgrims for their food and clothes, into a borderless, self-sustaining paramilitary group funded by large-scale estate management. And of course, the juxtaposition between the vow of poverty the knights continued to take and the sheer scale of their international holdings was placed into still starker relief after a new wave of monks who took their vows of poverty very seriously came around. For example, St. Francis of Assisi's Franciscans, who began to capture the religious Weltanschauung. So why were the Templars, in spite of these factors, still very popular among the powerful? It was their evolution into what amounts to the world's first international financial institution. The way it happened was this. One. Pilgrims, you remember, the travelers on a holy mission to walk in the footsteps of their lord and savior, whom the Templars were founded to defend. No matter how much protection the military orders could offer along the way, these unarmed civilians still had to travel through some dicey areas, full of bandits, confidence artists, and other hazards. Two. Because the Templars had a bunch of land holdings and income from various farms and other businesses that had been bequeathed to them, they had cash on hand at each of their strongholds throughout Europe and the Crusader states. Three. Pilgrims could deposit their money at the local Templar castle before leaving on their journeys in exchange for a letter of credit. 
Then, when they arrived at their destinations, they could present the letter to the Templars in that area, who would return the pilgrims' funds per the terms of the original agreement. Four. And there wasn't any worry about the Templar depositories getting robbed. Something to do with that term stronghold, and the difficulty of hauling away loot, while pursued by a group of vengeful, battle-tested, well-armed knights. Yeah, something like that. Five. So eventually the Templars had so much money on hand they were able to both make loans to local kings and also take deposits of those kings' funds and other treasures. Eventually it wasn't just kings, other nobles, rich merchants, etc. began storing their valuables at Templar houses. The benefits were obvious. Not only were the Templar vaults patrolled constantly by armed guards, but because they were considered a religious institution, no believer could even attempt to raid or rob the place under fear not only of punishment by civil authorities, but the potential of eternal damnation if they were excommunicated from the church. As Jones details, by 1240, the Templars' banking operations were diverse and significant. By the 1240s, the order was providing diverse financial services to some of the richest and most powerful figures across Christendom. In England and France, they provided safe storage for sensitive diplomatic documents, they also protected particularly valuable pieces of royal treasure, and in the case of France, acted as an official deposit house for royal revenue. They were used to distribute pensions promised by monarchs to wartime allies, and were party to agreements in which they operated as a mutually respected third party between warring rivals. They guaranteed debts, ransomed hostages and prisoners of war on credit, and could arrange very large loans such as the one made in 1240 to Baldwin II, the Emperor of Constantinople, secured by his very own fragment of the True Cross. This, of course, made the Templars even more powerful. But unfortunately for them, after the fall of Acre to the Muslim Mamluks in 1291, as Hag notes, they for the first time really felt as if they had lost their whole raison d'etre, and in the ensuing decades, the crusadeless crusader knights began to be seen as both expendable and too powerful, by one of the two people in the world in the best position to do something about it. The Pope? No, the other one. Some recommendations from our old favorites, 
plus surprise call-ins from authors to talk about the works that they're writing. Original music, prize giveaways, and more. That's Books Boys on BooksBoys.com and all good podcatchers. Books Boys. Get it. Buy it. Books. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.